0: Matthew 5, beginning at verse 17, this is God's holy and infallible word. This is Jesus continuing to speak, to preach his Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law Until everything is accomplished, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's God's word for us this morning so after the first, those eight Beatitudes, uh, that ta- that's through verse 12 of chapter 5, and then the talk about us being salt and light, where we were last week, these verses from the Sermon on the Mount are a little tougher, at least on the surface. What is Jesus getting at here? Well, Jesus is, is teaching on the mountainside, reminding us and the people then of Moses on Mount Sinai long ago who received the Ten Commandments. And now he comes as the new and perfect Moses, applying God's commandments to his disciples. What is murder, really, and adultery? Christ talks about giving to those in need. He talks about prayer and loving our enemies, worry, judging others. And we're going to cover all those topics for Christian living and more in the upcoming weeks, beginning at verse 21, right after our text. Our verses today are an introduction to all of that. You might say Jesus is giving us principles for Christian living in our verses, and then he lays out the practical implications in the verses after that. And, and we like things to be practical. We want to see uh, the immediate relevance of God's word for our life, but principles are important too. Without sound principles, You'll get off track in the day to day living and practical outworking of the faith. You know, you may want to sit down at the piano and start making beautiful music, but it's impossible without the fundamentals, the training, the musical foundations. You know, even if you have some athletic ability, you can't just be all of a sudden a great. Basketball player, you need the fundamentals, footwork, consistent shooting form. Just ask our our basketball coaches like Ken Heisinger, Jill Grunewald, and Matt Heisinger. Timothy's mock trial team includes uh, Coach Scott Roloffs and students from our own church. They're going to nationals. Winning state didn't just happen by pulling together. Uh, some quick-witted students who waltzed into these competitions and kind of went on the fly. No, there have been months, countless hours of work and practices in many years of that program at the school laying solid foundations. You need a solid foundation to be successful I know these students who professed their faith. They love the Lord. They are thriving for him, really, in their lives. And they want to continue to live faithful lives for him all the days of their life. And and we all want to live full lives for Jesus. Well, you don't just dive into that without a foundation for how to live the Christian life. We're going to As the weeks go on, be talking about worrying, controlling our anger, helping the needy, all the details of faithful living. In these verses, Jesus gives us the foundations for living lives like that. And these foundations are going to carry us forward in the upcoming verses, and they lead each one of us as God's disciples forward in a blessed life of living for Jesus. Four foundations we can discern in these verses. Four. The first foundation is this. Faithful living is guided by the authority of Scripture. Jesus affirms the authority of Scripture here. The law and the prophets, that's how the people in Jesus' day referred to the Old Testament. The law is technically the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the prophets, which preach and explain and apply God's law, kind of cover the rest for how the Jewish people referred to the scriptures. The Old Testament, of course, it was the only scripture available in Jesus' day. The New Testament was written in the years after Jesus ascended into heaven, but whatever Jesus says here about the Old Testament's authority for our lives certainly applies to the New Testament. Scripture for us is old and new. Jesus affirms Scripture here because there was a little confusion about him going on. He was doing all this teaching, but he wasn't a Pharisee. Uh, Those were the guys, the religious people people looked most up to. He wasn't a normal teacher or a, a rabbi as they called him in those days. He seemed to be breaking the church rules of the day regarding stuff like keeping the Sabbath, hanging around with sinners and lepers and other undesirable people. And people were trying to figure out what was up with Jesus exactly is he teaching something totally new is he saying the scriptures God's word that we stand on isn't important anymore Jesus is making it crystal clear that he's in line with the true faith throughout the ages do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets God's word is his authority He says, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear. God's word is absolute. It's permanent. It will stand to the very end. Not just the parts we happen to gravitate toward. Not just the parts we happen to like. All of it. Every smallest letter and least stroke of a pen is sometimes translated every jot and tittle or every iota and dot. The smallest letter of Hebrew or Aramaic that Jesus spoke was yod. It looks like a comma, but it's at the top of the word. Iota is the smallest letter in Greek, the language that the New Testament was actually written in. And you see them there. I don't have them in a paragraph, so it's hard to compare to to all the other letters. But on the left is the the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It it looks like a comma, but it's kind of superscripted. And there's the iota. That's where we get iota, very small. Every letter the human writers of Scripture wrote down Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is true and right in our authority. The least stroke, many people think, is Jesus referring to the smallest part of a letter you can imagine. And could you put that next slide up there? These are some Hebrew letters that are very close to one another. Under each one, you can look in your own Bible if you have it open. The Hebrew alphabet, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, are before, precede the various paragraphs of Psalm 119, which is all about the law of God. And if you look in the NIVs in that in the pew and most Bibles we have, you'll you'll see that. So the difference in the top line between a bait. And a cough. You see that? There's just a little stroke difference between those two. And it gets even harder on the next line down a dolit and a resh. It's at verse 25 and 153 in Psalm 119, if you want to see it in your own Bible. You, you could hardly tell the difference, and you see how the slightest difference matters. So Jesus is. is is telling us down to the smallest parts the bible is our authority i tell you the truth says jesus literally it's amen verily as the older translations put it in other words i'm saying this with all the authority i have and jesus is assuring the people of his day that Everything he says is in harmony with the Scriptures. And he's telling us in this introduction to his explanation of God's will for our lives that all our living is to submit to what the Scriptures say. This is the basis for all those verses about all the topics for Christian life explaining the commandments that are going to come up in verses 21 and following. In our Reformed tradition... We have a rich history of affirming the Old Testament and preaching and teaching from it. But there can be a tendency, and this has happened over the centuries in some Christian circles, it can happen to any of us, to, to downplay that Old Testament. Somehow it's, it's less important than the new somehow. It's clear here that Jesus confirms the Old Testament, And we know throughout the Gospels, he quotes from it all the time. He affirms it. It's God's word for himself. And so, of course, it's God's word for us as followers. It means there's a lot in the Old Testament for our doctrine and for our life. You think of the account of the creation of the world, Noah and the flood, the Ten Commandments and all the rest. If if we don't take the truth and the authority of everything in the Old Testament, For our lives today, well, we're contradicting what Jesus says about the law and the prophets, about the Word, the Bible. Jesus' disciples, we stand on the Word of God as our foundation. This is affirmed in the New Testament in 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. How are we equipped for every good work? How are we equipped to live for Jesus? By God's word, by scripture. What does a Christian marriage look like? Well, look to God's word. What should be characterizing our speech, how we talk to others. Look to the Word. How do we treat people in need? Go to the Scriptures. How do we live with one another in the church? How do we treat those around us in the world? Look to the Word. With Jesus, the way Jesus was acting in terms of the Sabbath in His day, and hanging out with sinners, people thought maybe he wasn't following God's Word because it's not what they saw in God's Word. But it turns out Jesus wasn't radical or different because he was rejecting the Word of God, but because he was actually radically following God's word and ensuring that it was his authority down to every jot and tittle, more so than anyone else, of course, who ever lived. That foundation will lead to successful Christian living. Every iota, friends, of God's word, we, we, we get that we need to give attention to that tiniest level of detail in life I mean you think of a math test something I care not to think about many of us are glad to be beyond that now that we're out of school but others you know math or science teachers accountants those in the finance world you get to have maybe uh, for your work fun with numbers every day well on a test on a tax form a budget whatever you lose attention and you know this students it will affect your grade You lose attention to one character, a single number. It messes up the entire equation. If you pay attention, it will come out right. And that's such, whether you love math or not, it's a beautiful thing when that equation comes out right in the end, isn't it? Well, being guided by the authority of Scripture, pay attention to every verse, every part of this God-breathed Word. It will lead to a blessed life. Things will come out beautifully. And that leads us to our second foundation this morning. Second, we fall short of being guided by Scripture. We can infer this from the broader context of our verses. This too is a critical foundation for our lives. Uh, The religious leaders of Jesus' day seem to have missed this. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who Jesus talks about in verse 20 thought they were living faithful lives before God, and they acted very self-assured about that. But they fell short, as all people do. The history of the Old Testament is the history of the failure of God's people to put themselves under the authority of God's Word. Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden by Satan. They fell into sin by choosing to listen to him rather than to the word of the Lord. Humankind, born into sin since Adam, has chosen foundations other than God's sure and reliable word ever since. And there are all sorts of ways that we can get off track from scripture's authority. The big problem in Jesus' day was religious leaders putting man-made traditions ahead of Scripture itself. They, they tweaked the law. They emphasized things in such a way that it was more manageable to keep than how it actually was written. In, in the verses after our text, these upcoming weeks, We're going to see a bit how they distorted the law. And and Jesus is going to be showing us what God's Word really says, stripped away from the tradition of man and, and anything that they were trying to add. Making tradition more important than Scripture happened in the church of the Middle Ages in such a big way that at the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers made a slogan In Latin, sola scriptura, Scripture alone, not Scripture and tradition, or what men says is our authority for faith and life. If we ever find that our traditions throughout the history of the church, our church today, if our traditions ever conflict with the Bible, we have to submit to the Bible. Another way we fall short of being guided by Scripture is when we put reason above God's revelation. And this is, of course, really common outside the church. How do most people live? Well, whatever seems right to them by what they kind of deduce and figure out in their own mind based on their own experience and reading and seeing others. And, but that can happen to us in the church, too. And we see this acceptance of same-gender marriage and same-gender intimacy. It's okay. And as more and more people say it's reasonable, we scratch our heads and say, well, it's got to be okay, right? So many people think it's reasonable, but that's not right because Scripture is really clear on this. Now, our reason is important. We're called to use our minds. But when there's a conflict between what people think and what Scripture says, we have to choose Scripture every time, even when it becomes unpopular. Our thinking is finite. Our thinking is... Sinful. That's no foundation for our lives because it will crumble. But the Bible says that God's word stands forever. And if we're honest with ourselves, we follow our stubborn thinking way too often. I came across an article this week called Nine Sins the Church is Okay with. I'm not going to get into the details of it, but it was interesting. The subtitle is, are we changing the Bible to fit our culture, or are we changing our culture to fit the Bible? In other words, is the Bible our authority, or the culture, right? The article is right to refer in the title, Nine Sins, it's right to say that following our culture instead of the Bible is sin. When the Bible isn't our ultimate authority, the result is sin. The Bible talks about sin as creating an enormous debt that needs to be paid to our holy God. The debt is so big that we cannot pay it. When we fall short of following Scripture in our lives, it creates a situation where We're in debt. We've got no change left in our pockets. The Pharisees seem to think that they had plenty of change in their pockets. And they thought they were earning more all the time before God with their pious lifestyles. But the fact is, we're out of change. We're empty. We're drained. We're at the end of our ropes. We're given graciously the perfect foundation to build our lives on God's own very perfect and reliable word. And we fail to live out of it. That's why the last part of this first verse is so important. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And this is one of the most important passages in all the Bible. It's one of the most foundational truths for our lives, for our salvation, for our living. The third foundation is this. Jesus fulfills our shortcomings with his coming and finished work. Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. What does that mean exactly, that fulfillment? Well, he certainly fulfills all the prophecies of the Old Testament. Centuries earlier, the prophets foretold details about Jesus' birth, his life, and especially his his suffering, his death. And We know that Jesus fulfills the law, too, specifically. We often talk about three types of law in the Old Testament, and that helps us sort through all those laws, those little laws that some of them are kind of strange. We wonder, do we have to follow those laws? Are they for us? We talk about the moral law in the Old Testament. That's the Ten Commandments. Talk about the ceremonial law. Those are all the little laws that had to do with the sacrificial system and the temple, Israel's worship. In the Old Testament are also the judicial laws, which had to do with Israel as a nation specifically. In Jesus' fulfilling of the law, he brought those ceremonial and judicial laws to an end. So when someone tells you, how can you believe The Bible, how can the Bible be your authority when it talks about stoning people as a punishment? And I don't see stoning happening in the church today or it commands God's people to sacrifice lambs, to kill their enemies, to take the land. Well, that's still God's holy, perfect word, of course. But Jesus fulfilled those commands with his coming. They are completed in him, in a sense. The moral law, The Ten Commandments continue as his will for us, but the ceremonial and judicial laws are fulfilled. They're completed with his finished work. We don't follow those now in the sense that ancient Israel did. Thinking about our sin and our shortcomings in terms of God's word, like we've been doing this morning, it's helpful to see that Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets especially means that he ensured God's word was fully obeyed. He fulfilled it literally means that he filled it up. We fall short. He makes up for our shortcomings. We're spiritually empty. We're depleted in our sin. And Jesus fills us up. Jesus says it twice here. Do not think I have come. I have not come. He's talking about why he's come, his coming, why he came, how important it is. Well, it was to fulfill God's word, to obey it down to the smallest detail where we do not. Why the cross in his coming? Well, because God's law demands death When that law is violated, out of his love for us, he took on that penalty for sin so that all who believe in him could be saved and have eternal life instead of eternal death. He fulfilled the penalty of the law to deliver us from its curse. A fourth and final foundation. Jesus' coming and work propel us to faithful living. Jesus says, Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be great in the kingdom. That's in verse 19. You know, just a couple weeks ago on Easter, we read the Great Commission at the end of the book of Matthew. And that verse, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be great, uh, really reminds me of Jesus telling his disciples, go, make dis- other disciples, Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. It's similar here. You want to be great for Jesus, students? You want to be great for Jesus, whoever you are? You stand on his word. You obey his commands, and you teach others to do the same. Now, some of us here have teaching gifts But even if you don't feel like you're a teacher, you don't have those gifts of teaching God's Word, well, we all teach others God's Word when we support the mission of the church because, of course, that's our primary goal and purpose, sharing the Word, teaching the Word, teaching others to obey it. So as you're part of the church and supporting the church, you're fulfilling the Great Commission. You can be great in the kingdom. Jesus talks about righteousness, a right living in verse 20 that surpasses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. That would have been unheard of because everyone thought the Pharisees, they were the greatest people of all. They were the most pious. They had the best life of all. As close to perfection as you can get. But we know something They missed and kind of duped everybody else to miss. Like everybody else, they fell short. They were following laws, sure, but they were their own. It wasn't necessarily God's law, God's word. They were their own authority. That's what they set up. They set up this system where they were their own authority when God calls us to bow to him and to follow his word. So they really weren't so great after all. I mean, anybody can be great if you make up your own standards for what greatness is. But greatness in the kingdom is having God's word as your authority, recognizing that we fall short of following it, finding in Jesus' finished work the fulfillment of our shortcomings and in him being propelled to live out of God's word in every single area of our life. That's how our righteousness can surpass even those who on the surface look to be living the best lives of all. Because our true righteousness is Jesus himself, the one who lived perfectly and followed God's word. He crossed every T, he dotted every I for us. And that becomes our righteousness. God applies it to us when we belong to him. Romans 8 which talks about living for the Lord, gives us the secret power to that living in Jesus. And it's the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to propel us forward to faithful living in Jesus' name. In the Spirit, we can be guided by Scripture down to every little part as we live our lives day by day. One of our Reformed forefathers Abraham Kuyper famously talked about claiming every square inch of life for King Jesus. I wonder if that could be considered a paraphrase of every iota, every jot, every tittle. Since Jesus fulfilled the law for us, now we can live lives that dot every I, that attention to detail to God's word and our living. And we can do that with his help. May we, all of us, build on these foundations that Jesus gives us here, and as we do, have successful, blessed, beautiful, and faith-filled lives for the Lord. Amen.